get the opportunity to introduce a lot of wonderful men to our pulpit here at Colonial. And uh, we've been blessed by the Lord to have some of uh, just the best expositors in the country come and open the Word of God. And it's always a real delight for me to be able to get to know these men. They're just ordinary men who love Christ. And, and uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to just being able to introduce a couple of guys to you. Uh, Scott Wiley, who happens to be the best children's pastor in the world. Scott is... It is true. Scott has just wrapped up his 13th year at the Colonial. You know how rare that is? Not only to be an associate pastor in the same church, but to work with uh, children Moms and dads, that is really, really rare. This man is uh, patience uh, exemplified, has a real heart for the home. And I will say one more word here about Scott. On our team of pastors, we know and uh, we, we, we talk about and we recognize that he happens to be an example of a father and a husband. He is committed to his two boys in wonderful ways and is a model to me and to the rest of our team. So I want you to help me welcome to this pulpit, one of our own, Pastor Scott Wiley. That is really unfair to do to a guy. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. Well, as a children's pastor, I'm always interested in what children think. And uh, frankly, I find it more interesting than what adults think. Uh, a lot of times, even though it's often very wrong, it's, it's always very interesting. And so at foreverwed.com, foreverwed.com is not a website I necessarily recommend, but they, did a, they surveyed children on their views of love and marriage. And here are some interesting things that, that I found in that survey. When asked, what exactly is marriage? Eric, age six, replied, marriage is when you get to keep your girl and don't have to give her back to her parents. But that was good. That's actually true, right? How does a person decide who to marry? Kelly, age nine, said you flip a nickel. Heads means you stay with him. Tails means you try the next one. Or Carolyn, age eight, who said, my mother says to look for a man who's kind and that's what I'll do. I'll find somebody who's kind of tall and handsome. I think she heard that somewhere before. But that same Carolyn, she was asked, what is the proper age to get married? She said, 84. (laughs) Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore, and you can spend all your time loving each other. That's in contrast to Bert, age five, who said, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. (laughs) (laughs) How did your mom and dad meet? Lottie, age nine. They were at a dance party at a friend's house. They went for a drive, but their car broke down. And it was a good thing because it gave them a chance to find out about their values. (laughs) What do most people do on a date? One 10-year-old cynic named Martin said, On the first date, they just tell each other lies. (laughs) And that usually gets them interested enough for a second date. And Craig, age nine, who was more pragmatic, said, Many daters just eat pork chops and french fries and talk about love. 
All right, I'm, I'm almost done here. When is it okay to kiss someone? You should never kiss a girl unless you have enough bucks to buy her a ring and her own VCR. Because <laughs> she'll want to have videos of the wedding. And then Callie, age nine, said, Never kiss in front of other people. It's a big, embarrassing thing if anybody sees you. If nobody sees you, I might be willing to try it with a handsome boy, but just for a few hours. (laughs) And here's the last question. Is it better to be single or married? Will, age seven, said, It gives me a headache to think about that stuff. (laughs) I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. (laughs) Anita said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys, because boys need somebody to clean up up after them. (laughs) And then 10-year-old Kristen said, you should ask the people who read Cosmopolitan. Now, consider Kristen's response for a minute, because unfortunately, Kristen reveals a truth about our society, doesn't she? If you want to know something about relationships... You turn to Cosmopolitan or Modern Bride or Dr. Phil because our society is looking for answers in all the wrong places. But fortunately, we have God's words, the one who created family in the first place. And God's word offers us exactly what we need to have healthy and God-honoring homes. God's word is the source of truth And it's to God's word that we are going to turn for insight regarding the family in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 has this famous section on the family in 522 through uh, 6.4, but it fits into the context of the whole book in a way that helps us understand this passage better. So I want to spend a couple of moments just setting the context. And so we're not going to read this, but just kind of look through Ephesians as we go here together. In uh, chapters 1 through 3, Paul focuses on some doctrinal issues. In particular, he places an emphasis on what Christ has done for us and how the work of Christ unifies us as believers. Paul reminds the Ephesians of God's saving work in them, and Paul prays that they would know and experience the great power of Christ in their life. He discusses the gospel and his desire that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. And the point is that we need the power of Christ if we are going to live as Christ wants. Only Christ can change the heart and make a person whole. And only Christ can deal with the sin that so often plagues our relationships and keeps us from living as God wants. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses the word therefore to mark a transition from the theological, discussing what Christ has done for us, to becoming very practical in telling us how we ought to live in light of what he has done. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he exhorts the church to walk in unity. And he reminds them that even though there are different gifts And roles, there is only one body. And I want you to look at this in Ephesians 4, verse 3, because this combination of both unity and order is important in both the church and the home. In Ephesians 4, 3, it says, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. In the body of Christ, there is unity and equality, but there's also structure and order. Look at verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So God gives different gifts and roles in the church. Everyone is important. Everyone is in Christ. Everyone serves each other, but we do it in different ways and in different roles. Here in this list that he gives in these verses, he mentions positions of leadership, positions of authority. And we'll see that in the home, there's also leadership. Now, so here's my point. The church has roles and structure, which God has established, and the home also has roles and structure, which God has established. And in neither case does it infringe on our equality in Christ. It's simply a matter of function. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, Paul exhorts the church to walk in truth and holiness. And in particular, he says to lay aside our sin and put on the new self, which is being renewed by the power of Christ, making the point that the life of the believer should be distinct from that of the unbeliever. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, Paul gives an exhortation to imitate Christ. And in particular, we are to treat each other with the self-sacrificing love with which Christ loved us. Paul then says to walk in the light, which he defines as walking in ways that are good and righteous and true. And then finally, he tells us to walk in wisdom and reminds us that we need to be vigilant and careful because the days we live in are evil. And so it's in this context that Paul turns his attention to the Christian family and gives us instruction on the various roles and relationships that exist in that setting. It's not an abrupt change of topic, but a continuation on Paul's instruction on how believers are to live in this world and relate to each other. Through our family life, we have the opportunity to imitate Christ to be distinct from the world, to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 64, Paul discusses four relationships. Wife to husband, husband to wife, child to parent, and parent to child. And he tells us how family members should relate to each other in those roles. And so that's going to be our outline, looking at that text. And we'll look at others, of course, too. So wives, our remaining time, we'll focus on you because that's where Paul begins. And next we'll focus on the husbands because we can skip all this introduction and give them the full 30 minutes that they need. (laughs) So, now obvious, ladies, I can't understand all that it means to be a wife. I find myself just amazed and grateful that I have one. All I can do hopefully, is take us to what Christ says about the Christian family. Scripture tells us in Proverbs that a woman who fears the Lord 
is the one who is to be praised. But in order to fear the Lord, it's important to understand the roles that God has given us. So this isn't about what I think. You know, my family is just like your family, made up of four sinners who struggle every day to obey Christ. So please also understand that Ephesians in this passage is not the total of what God says about being a man, woman, or child of God. I chose Ephesians not for its scope, but because I think that for the family, Paul here in Ephesians gets to the hardest things that God calls us to do. It's hard for parents to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's hard for children to yield their will and obey and honor their parents. It's hard for husbands to set aside their personal interest and sacrificially love their wives the way Christ loves the church. And it's hard for a wife to joyfully submit to her husband, but God calls us to do hard things. And so let's look at this together in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, where it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Paul has three basic points regarding a wife's relationship to her husband. We're going to see the calling of the wife, the mindset of the wife, and an example for the wife. The basic calling that God gives to the wife in relationship to her husband is that she lets her husband lead. She submits in verse 22. Now, that verb submit in verse 22 doesn't exist in the Greek text. If you have the New American Standard Bible, you'll see that it's in italics. I don't think the NIV or the ESV do that, but the New American Standard Version helps us in that way. That that verb is in italics. It doesn't exist there. It literally says, wives to your husbands. And so in order to get the word submit, we have to go back to the preceding verse, verse 21, where it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So literally, if you were to put those two verses together, it would say, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. Now, there are those in the church who would deny any distinctions based on gender, and they misuse verse 21 by claiming that it erases all such distinctions. The position claims that verse 21 modifies everything that follows and eliminates any hierarchy. So, since it says there to be subject to one another, what Paul must have meant was, wives be subject to your husbands, and husbands be subject to your wives, and there's no distinction between the two. But that position fails to take into account the whole context, and we're going to see that, because God does, in fact, establish a distinction. In the Christian home, there is a God-ordained hierarchy or a chain of command. In verse 21, where he's talking about the church, and he says, be subject to one another, that does not mean that the church is free from structure and authority. 
we saw a few minutes ago. He gave us a list of some offices in the church. You can also look in, we're not going to turn to it, but you could look to Paul's teaching on elders in many, many places in the New Testament. There is structure. There is an authority structure. There is responsibilities. We don't all submit to each other in the same way. So in verse 21, Paul is saying, line yourselves up under each other. And then in verse 22, he transitions from the church to the family, and he's explaining how that lining up is supposed to happen in the context of the home. Now, to see this, it helps us to know that that word subject is a compound Greek word that means to arrange under or to line up under. It means to place or arrange yourself under the authority of another person. It refers to times when we submit to another because of that person's authority, because of the position that that person holds. We won't turn to it, but Paul in Titus 3.1, he's giving Titus instructions on what you should teach the church. And he uses that word when he says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient for every good deed. Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 5.5 when he says, Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So again, it's lining yourself up under authority because of the position that another person holds. So with this word submit, there is absolutely no implication of inferiority. I subject myself to rulers and authorities not because they're better than me, but because God has placed them in positions of authority over me. And likewise, the wife does not submit to her husband because he's better than her, because we all know that he's not. She simply submits because of the position that God has given her husband. So consider the illustration of Christ, for example. He was not inferior to Mary and Joseph. He was God in heaven before the incarnation, He was God as an embryo. He was God as a baby and God as a child. Yet according to Luke 2.51, this word is said of him that he continued in subjection to Mary and Joseph. Why? Not because they were better than him, but because of the position that they had in his life at that point. So submission is a matter of order, not a matter of superiority. But still it sometimes is very, very hard. And that leads us to Paul's next point. The call of the wife is to submit to her husband. The mindset is that she does it as unto the Lord, in verse 22 at the end there. When considering the question, why would a Christian wife do this? One answer will hopefully be that she does it out of love for the man God gave her to, but here Paul gives a much higher calling to the woman. He says, ladies, when you do this, you do this as to the Lord. Now, by the way, guys, that doesn't mean that she treats you the way she would treat the Lord. That's not what that means. What it means is the wife submits to her husband as an act of love to God. She does it not because of the greatness of her husband, not even primarily because she loves her husband, although she does. A wife does this because she loves God. She loves his word, and she wants to obey him. So the mindset of the wife is, I am doing this for God. 
Submission is not tied to gifts or abilities or the husband's worthiness of being submitted to. People sometimes assume that the one who's best at doing something should be the one who does it. But that's not how God has set things up always. If we were to keep a scorecard, which a lot of us guys do, by the way, ladies, and keep an honest tally of our qualities and our gifts and our abilities, many of us would fall short when compared to our wives. Most intelligent, wife. Most discerning, wife. Quality of prayer life, wife. Best looking, obviously. (laughs) Most frugal, in my case, wife. Best personality, wife. Most outgoing, wife. It's likely that in many, maybe even most areas, the wife exceeds her husband. It's even possible that the wife is the most gifted leader. But that's not a factor as far as God is concerned. I want to read a story for you that illustrates this. Debbie Pearl tells this story about a bike ride. Now, as you listen, I, don't want, you to, I want you to try not to judge this husband for his obstinance. Just listen and be encouraged by the attitude and perspective of this woman. It's the story of a woman who was better than her husband, but chose to let him lead for the sake of serving him and God. Here it is. A newlywed couple decided to take a bicycle road trip for their honeymoon. I don't know if that was a good idea. (laughs) They had the map all worked out. They had the bikes and gear ready. And after riding for a couple of days, the young wife noticed that her good husband was going the wrong way. She stopped him and tried to show him on the map that he had veered off course. She had always been endowed with a natural ability to read maps and knew exactly where they were. He was not so gifted, but he argued that she was dead wrong and insisted that they were indeed headed the right way. Later that day, he did discover that he had taken the wrong road, and he brushed it off and blamed the road signs. Again, the next day, he took the wrong road, and she argued with him, and he kept trying to correct their course, but they were not taking the shortest route. She let him know his error But nothing would change his mind. He knew he was right, and if not exactly right, then he was as right as could be expected under the circumstances. And criticism was not welcomed. So what could she do? The young wife was not pleased with the way they were relating, and she reasoned to herself that this could become the pattern for the rest of their lives. She thought on the matter, and it occurred to her that it was very important for him to be right and to be in charge, and it really didn't matter which road they took. They were taking this trip to be together, not to get somewhere in particular. God, in his mercy and grace, gave this sweet young wife a new heart. She decided to follow her husband down any road he chose. So she cheerfully began to enjoy the beautiful day and the glory of being young and in love as she pedaled her bike down the road that was taking them where every marriage ought to go, even though it was not according to the map. Now, I know that's just a silly story about a map, but isn't it those silly, everyday things that frustrate us so? The stubborn husband who won't listen to advice, he insists that he's right and she knows that she's right, and all of a sudden there's conflict, and this is where it gets hard. Ladies, The route might be more direct if you were in charge. 
The family devotions might be more effective if you led them. The decision might be more prudent if you made it. But you being better at something than your husband does not reverse the order God established for the family. And by the way, men, a wise and godly husband will honor the skill and wisdom of his wife, right? But here's the point. Neither the greatness or shortcomings of our spouse impact our obedience to Christ in the way that we respond to that person. Ladies, when it comes to letting your husband lead, your eyes are on Christ. Yes, Lord, I will do this for you because of all that you have done for me. And Paul clarifies the order in the home a little bit further. If you look down in verse 23, he says, The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. So God established a chain of authority in the home where the husband is the head of the family. Now, those who seek to eliminate gender distinction claim that there is no authority in this verse. They would define head as source, as in the head of a river, as opposed to authority, as in the head of a corporation. Head can mean source, and it does sometimes, but in this case, Paul has authority in mind. Number one, because I'm not the source of my wife, right? Number two, this context is all about authority and lining up under each other. And number three, in the 2,000 places where this word exists in all of Greek literature, every time it refers to people, it always means authority. So Paul is saying that God has established an authority structure in the home, and out of obedience to Christ, the wife lines herself up with the order that God has established. I also would like to point out that there's no indication or sense in Scripture that any of this is cultural. The headship of Christ, which is the illustration here, right? The headship of Christ over the church and the husband over the family does not vary based on your culture or your place in history's timeline. So we can't say that the Bible is irrelevant because it no longer fits with our modern times. We can't do that. As long as Christ is the leader of the church, the husband is the leader of the family. And that brings us to the next point. The call of the wife is to submit to her husband. The mindset of the wife is that she does this as unto the Lord. And the example for the wife is the church and its relationship to Christ. Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands in a way that reflects the church's submission to Christ. In verses 23 and 24, where he says, For as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So marriage is being interpreted in light of the relationship between Christ and his church. And we're going to see this when Paul goes into much more detail on this point when he's talking to the men. Now, men, that phrase right there, he himself being the savior of the body, you should read that as a parallel, not as a contrast. The Christian husband should find in that phrase an illustration of the way he should relate to his wife. The husband is to mimic Christ by being the ever-vigilant, self-denying protector, 
guardian, and deliverer of his family. And we'll talk more about leading as Christ leads. But ladies, you should see in that phrase, so also, that Paul ties the example of Christ and the church to the Christian wife. There's similarity in the way that the church allows Christ to lead and the way a wife allows her husband to lead. And the other side is true as well. There's similarity between the way Christ treats the church and the way the Christian husband treats his wife. Paul is not equating the husband with Christ, and he's not equating the wife with the church. He's giving the husband and wife a model to follow. And we'll talk about that in more detail because Paul's just beginning a thought that he carries on in the next several verses. The relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the church. He's going to describe that as a mystery when we see that. So the heart of where Paul is going is is that, that this is a picture. And I want you to see that. Now, before closing, people often ask about the limits of a wife's submission. What if a husband goes too far? There are situations where a husband might exceed his boundaries and put his wife in a difficult position of having to choose between her husband and her God. And one helpful way to think about that, I think, is to tie it to a husband's sphere of authority. One sphere of authority that a husband can't violate is God's law. And a wife is not obligated to follow him into sin. In that case, saying no to him is saying yes to God. Another sphere of authority that husbands can't violate is the legitimate law of government. So, for example, asking his wife to sign a tax return that contains false information. A wife is not obligated to commit a crime because her husband asked her to. Again, saying no to her husband is saying yes to God. And as I was studying, though, I, was, I, was, I guess I was a little bit surprised at how many people disagree with me on that and, and consider a husband's authority to be a little bit more absolute than that. Acts chapter 5, I think, is, makes it the most clear that we, when, when faced with a choice between submitting to a legitimate authority who had asked them to violate God's will or submitting to God, the apostles made it clear, pretty clear, absolutely clear, that they, that they would choose God as opposed to serving man. But refusing to submit to a husband is tricky because sometimes a wife might confuse the husband's sphere of authority with her own personal rights and preferences. Where submission gets complicated is when it intersects and conflicts with self-interest. It's easy to submit when the decision is one that you would have made anyway, right? It's hard to submit when it's a decision you don't like. So, for example, if a husband were to say, Sweetie, you look great, but that outfit is not modest, and I really think you ought to put something else on. A wife's going to go, Wait a minute! That's my decision. That's my business. That's my, I decide what I put on. But that husband has not exceeded his sphere of authority. He's not violated the law of God. He's not violated the law of man. In that case, saying yes to your husband is saying yes to God. So 
I, I know that it's sometimes tricky and you have to work this out through prayer and, and study of God's word every day, but we cannot confuse saying yes to God with saying yes to self. There is a difference. Let me say this just as clearly as I can. If the issue involves choosing between your husband and Christ, line up under Christ. If the decision involves choosing between your husband and yourself, you line up under your husband. Now, obviously, this takes place in the context of careful and loving conversation, expressing your desires and wisely offering suggestions and advice and correction as needed. But let me bring this all together. Here's what Paul, I think, is saying to wives. Wives, I'm calling you to align yourself under the authority of your husband, remembering that you do this as an act of love and submission to Christ your Savior. Christ established your husband as the head of your home. Respect and honor the structure and order that God established and submit to your husband as a way of submitting to Jesus. John Piper puts it this way. Creatively and intelligently and sincerely support the leadership of your husband as deeply as obedience to Christ will allow and encourage him in his God-appointed role as head. Influence him spiritually, primarily through your fearless tranquility and holiness and prayer. And guys, a few comments for you. Please remember, in true humility, that God calls your wife to submit to a sinner. And that's not easy. She doesn't do it because you're entitled to it, because you're not entitled. She does it because she loves Christ and she wants to please him. Seek to lead your family in truth and righteousness so that the path you lead your family on is the path that Christ wants them on. In other words, make it your goal that your wife's motivation to submit can be more than her joy in serving Christ. Allow her the privilege of following you because following you is good. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you that you have given us instruction that applies to our homes, to our churches, to the way we interact as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents. Father, I pray especially for wives, and we thank you for them. We're so grateful for the wives that you've given. Those of us who are married, we're thankful for our mothers. And Father, we know that you've called them to many things that are hard. We saw earlier Um, Raising preschoolers is hard. Sometimes being obedient to you in the positions that you've given us is hard. But Father, give them hearts that are turned toward you, hearts of love toward, toward you, toward their children, and toward their husbands, and help them to lead lives that are truly worthy of being being praised and honored because it is said of them that they feared the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.